Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Are you interested in staying up to date on the latest global tax trends? The EY Tax and Law in Focus podcast series is for you. In each episode, we bring you exclusive discussions with EY professionals and independent industry thought leaders from across the globe. Together, they share their insight on global tax policy and reform, disruptive technology, transformation, ESG and more. Listen today to the EY Tax and Law in Focus podcast series and stay ahead of the curve. Hello, I'm Claudia Hammond and a very warm welcome to the evidence from the BBC. Now this series is produced in collaboration with Welcome Collection and today we're here at their base in London with a live audience as part of the Land Body Ecologies Festival. Now today we're going to explore the profound psychological effect that changes to our environment can have on us. We are looking at the concept of solastalgia. It was a new one to me until recently, and it's a kind of homesickness while you're still at home. It's the emotional pain brought about by environmental change close to the place that you consider to be home. And we're also going to be hearing some stories, and later on we'll be asking whether personal testimonies should be taken more seriously as forms of evidence. And I'll be speaking to the new chair of the Wellcome Trust, former Prime Minister of Australia, Julia Gillard. But let me introduce you to our panel for the first part of our show. We have here in the middle Victoria Pratt, who is Creative Director of Invisible Flock, which is an interactive art studio based in the north of England. And she's a founding member of Land Body Ecologies, who've been in residency here at the Welcome Collection, exploring the impact of environmental change on mental health. And they have teams in India, Uganda, Kenya, Thailand and the Arctic. And we have Daniel Kobe, who is director of Ogiek People's Development Programme. And that's an organisation representing the Ogiek people in Kenya. And we have Dr Elaine Flores, who's research fellow in planetary health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. So a very warm welcome to all of you and thank you for being here. Now, first, I thought we would try to understand a bit more about solastalgia, which is sometimes described as a feeling of homesickness without leaving home. Now, Daniel, your organisation represents, as I said, the Ogiek people who are indigenous to the Mao Forest in the Rift Valley of Kenya. Are you able to explain to us what it feels like to have your environment destroyed? Gloria, thank you very much, and thank you for BBC. First, when you tell an Ogiek that your forest has been destroyed, they feel that emptiness, that kind of, like, you have been isolated from your own status of life, where your spirituality has been interfered. You feel that connectivity is no longer there. So for, for a community which are dependent on forest, seeing the destruction, and in this case, you feel like you are nobody again. You have been left alone in a desert of your own. And in this case, you are told, now you have to boil water because we used to, clear, to, to just take water straight from the river. But because of the pollution, the kind of erosions and such like, you find that you are no longer at peace. So, Elaine, are these kinds of feelings what we mean when we talk about solastalgia? What, what have people told you it feels like in, in research? 
from the stories of the people, they mention things very much alike to what Daniel has mentioned. Most of them, they will be referring to places that they have had in their lives for decades as points of reference for them, for their communities, and now things have changed. No, For example, in, in, in Peru, in my home country, there is this lake in the frontier with Bolivia that has been, for some decades now, has been uh, changing completely with an algae explosion, a disruption of, uh, of fish, and increase in temperatures, and even something as massive as this uh, body of water as Lake Titicaca is now being completely degraded, and people, they are being affected by this uh, environmental change that they have in front. And as you said, I've been to Lake Titicaca. It is a massive body of water. I mean, it's absolutely huge. And Victoria, solastalgia is a relatively new concept, and it's, it's a growing field of study. How did this term come about? Because it sounds a bit like nostalgia, which is, tends to be thought of as something positive, a sort of positive looking back. Yeah, so the term was coined by environmental philosopher Glenn Albrecht um, in 2005. Uh, he's written a brilliant book called Earth Emotions, which is his attempt to find new words to articulate um, the psychological effects we're, as humanity, experiencing as we see degradation of our lands. He coined the term, like I say, back in 2005 when he witnessed the large-scale coal mining that was taking place in New South Wales, in Australia, where he's from, and his community's inability to express the pain that they were witnessing. And the important thing about solastalgia is it also touches on people's feelings of powerlessness over what is happening. And is it a kind of, I don't know, environmental grief in a way? I think that's another term that is, is being used. I think these new terms across the climate space are being developed. You know, we hear eco-anxiety a lot, something that's an impending doom that's going to happen to us all. Solastalgia, however, it, it touches more on historical injustices, mining that's taken place over generations, the evictions of indigenous peoples from their lands. So it felt much closer to um, what we as a group were exploring. And what's interesting is you're an arts organisation that's based here rather than a health organisation specifically. How, how did it all come about? Why did you get interested in this topic? I think as artists we're very lucky in that we get to engage with a really broad spectrum of people. Um, we don't sit in offices. Quite often we work in communities. We spend time in environments with, uh, with different types of people, with non-humans. And we, I think as artists, we are, our role is to be good listeners, um, to try and understand what sits between the cracks, what isn't being heard in the mainstream media, and try and amplify what we are hearing that we feel is important. And what have you been hoping to achieve while you're here in the hub in, at Welcome? Well, when we first came to Welcome, there wasn't really a discussion about climate change or mental health. It was very early on. Welcome's pillars now are mental health, climate change and infectious diseases. And our residency back in 2019 um, was really at the infancy of, of those pillars being developed. So it's been amazing to see this discussion, to be really foregrounded and to have our communities and people like uh, Daniel and Quicksand, who I can see in the audience, come together to have this discussion on this platform. Yeah, because you have these hubs in different places around the world. Yes, instead of having one research group here centred in London with all the problems that that has, to take a different kind of approach to research and have community embedded hubs spread everywhere, 
as we got our award, the pandemic hit. And as an international team, we were still able to continue our work because we were formed in, in this way. And Daniel, you're running the hub in Kenya. So where were the Ogiek people living and, and why did they have to leave? Well, they were living there and they've been there. It is only that um, because of conservation and, uh, and issues about climate change and the rest, the government wants to do what you call 30 by 30. They want to, to cover 10% of the forest. But now to do it, you evict some people. Many people now say, you are removing us from our ancestral land. And Ogiek actually means uh, caretaker of all plants and wild animals. But that's, that's interesting that people have been moved for the sake of conservation, if you like. Exactly. And, and it's something which is really very strange because, one, they have never accepted the role indigenous people play in conservation or the methods we use to conserve. So what's it meant for people in practice? Where have people had to move to or how have their lives changed? Of course, their lives have changed. One, they have lived in abject poverty, most of them, especially those lands which were evicted, and then part of the land fenced. Unfortunately, part of the country, some of the people from uh, this country uh, supported in fencing, this really has denied them. You have been put in a small area and maybe you are now settling with some of the relatives who may have not been affected. The Kenyan hub, it was uh, very, very strategic. We were trying to set up a centre for the community. This is where we will be meeting as a community, as a gear cultural centre. So by then, then we said, well, we have a lot of issues. A lot of people have been evicted. A lot of them are depressed and a lot of mental issues, and most of them go to the hospital and then they are told you are okay. They go and get a lab test and all that. But you, you, you say you are sick. I've not slept for three days. And when you, you, you talk to them after we did a bit of research, we realize a lot of people are depressed because of the eviction, because of the problem of their land. They are no longer connected to their traditions and their knowledge. So this, this gave a bit of hope because now people were getting a place where they are fused. It is no longer like you are just alone. It is now somebody is asking you, how do you feel? What did you leave? Remember, you have some beehives and they are no longer there. They have been cut down or they have been deprived or denied access to the forest. And Elaine, not having a sense of power and not having a sense of agency and decision about these things, how, how much is that a big part of solastalgia? It's a main component, actually. The feeling that you cannot do nothing to prevent further uh, damage or to stop the current damage that is happening now or to reverse something. I would say that communities, maybe they are not as organized enough, they cannot put enough pressure to their authorities or governments to put a stop or to do something to ameliorate the damages. That is a main component uh, of this type of distress. Well, thank you for the moment. Let's see whether there are any uh, questions from our audience um, to the panel about what we've heard so far. If you have a question, do wave your hand. Yes, there's one up there, please, Duncan. So Duncan's going to run up lots of steps now. We'll try and spread out the question as much as possible so he has to run a really long way. Hi, it's a question for Daniel. Um, it was just around, um, you're talking particularly about the damage that's been d done to your forest. I was just trying to understand whether it is a sort of a problem of deforestation or if it is actually a, like a climate change problem. A lot of it has been caused by deforestation. And, 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 and it, is, it was caused because the government started issuing, issuing licenses to logging companies. 
and it destroyed a massive part of the forest. And then they, they want to replant again the plantation. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. And Victoria, have you seen that certain groups are more likely to be affected by solastalgia? Who's particularly vulnerable? I think I can only speak from my connection to our group. Um, it's a very hard question to answer, I think, because how can we measure people's pain? You know, pain is individual. I guess I would say that the communities we've worked with in the Arctic will very clearly say that they're, they're witnessing it now. It's, it's too late for us. We see the melting of our glaciers. We see the changes of biodiversity in our water. We're losing our ability to herd reindeers, as, as we did. But you, you see this, you know, we see this within Daniel's community around the loss of food traditions or the ability to use medicinal plants in the same way. So I, I, I wouldn't say that it's felt more by one than the other, but that pain is very, very individual. And what I will say is that within our group, you know, we are specifically focused on land-dependent and indigenous peoples because of their close connection to their lands and because those narratives have been historically overlooked in this climate change and mental health conversation. And do you find that people of any, any age group could be affected? Absolutely. You know, we've had testimonies from young people um, and particularly from elders, I would say, who, who see that they won't return to their land as it was. You know, Daniel spoke of just one example, but there are many, many examples in, in the elder community that feel that their traditions are either disrespected um, by what's happening to the environment, um, they feel barriers to be able to pass that culture to the younger generation. And I feel like the younger generation also feel in some way lost about what's happening. Um, and like I say, again, their inability to, to have an impact. Um, but what I would say is you do hear from some great young activists who are leading the way forward for us. And we will be hearing from a great young activist in the, in the second part of the show. And Daniel, have you seen it affect people of all ages? Let me start from what Victoria said. In, in my own experience with the Ogier community in Kenya, I realized the older generation get affected most. One, they realize they are not able to change to the new way of living unlike younger generation. They were used to eating honey. They were used to herbal medicine. Now they, you are being introduced to new way of living because you have been removed from your habitat. So these kind of people and those who are more depressed are the older people because they still remember where their beehives were. They still remember a lot about the forest or the way they were living, the caves where they used to visit and the rest. The younger generation always get like they are lost, as Victoria said. They no longer know whether they belong to this generation or the other. Elaine, it's interesting this issue about age, because often in, say, countries like the UK or the US, you will hear about younger people in particular feeling a real kind of, you know, we were talking about eco-anxiety earlier, feel worry about the future. And yet I suppose that's different from what's impacting people right now in some communities. Yes, exactly. As Daniel and Victoria has also said, one of the main links that will be related to these um, negative psychological impacts will be their own attachment to their land and the links that have been built 
uh, across decades and, of course, before that, uh, across their own traditions. So what we know, the target groups that are more at risk, both extreme of lives, uh, youth, elders, uh, women, especially those living in underserved um, groups, indigenous groups, people with um, background of mental disorders uh, and living with disabilities, they are at, more at risk of uh, developing or worsening these type of disorders. And Daniel, there has been some progress for the Ogiek people, and so the Ogiek People's Development Programme was, was set up in 1999 to um, promote um, and, and fight for, for their rights. Um, what successes have you seen? I don't know whether I call it successes, but um, there are some, maybe we have gained some milestones on, on the struggle we have had for our land in Mao Forest Complex. And um, for over 20 years, we have been doing litigation on the issues about our land rights in Mao. And um, we stayed in Kenyan courts for almost 12 years, and then we went to the African court or the regional court in Africa for another eight years, making a total of 20. And... Um, in 2017, we won a landmark case on the 26 May 2017, and uh, we, the, the government of Kenya um, were told to give rights and uh, or give, declare Ogiek as indigenous peoples of Kenya and give them back their land rights. But uh, by then, they also withhold, withheld what we call uh, reparation. And But uh, last year, on the 23rd June 2022, we won a reparation case, which uh, at least outline all the specific including compensation and all the other restitution, having our land rights. But till now, despite of all those memorable historical uh, land successes, we have not gotten our land or our restitution back. So we are still uh, appealing to the Kenyan government to ensure that they fast track the implementation of the Ogier case so are you hopeful? Are you yeah, hopeful yeah, that you we, will get we it? Yeah, we are. We are hopeful. Uh, most recently, we have started having a discussion with the government, but government is government. We say in Kenya that because they always uh, want to behave like they are good, but they are not. They take a long, long time. They keep postponing things. We even say we are meeting next week. They say no. Uh, the, the minister is not. He was called to the state house, so he, he or she cannot be available. So we postponed to another time, and this kind of postponement has really hurt the people. But we always give hope to the people that one day our land rights will be realised. Victoria, how could what you've learnt in your time at the hub be be used elsewhere? Do you think to to make a difference with Solastalgia? I think the main thing I would say to that is funding communities to do their own research. I think what this project has done as, uh, as a group, you know, it's transdisciplinary, yes, but it is also community-led. Daniel Reese leads the research in Kenya. Action for Back to Our Empowerment Group lead the research in Windy. You know, they're employing research assistants from their communities. Sylvia from our Windy Hub said yesterday in her talk, the reason she thinks that the research has been so successful is because her community trusts her. She is back to her herself. There's no barrier to that engagement, and I think it allows a depth of exploration that researchers coming in or satelliting in um, doesn't, and it also doesn't cause damage, which, importantly, that, that type of research has caused in the past.
Well, thank you for the moment. And let's take another question. Hi, everyone. I have been attending the festival uh, yesterday and today, and a question that I've come up with since, well, an observation, really. It seems that people that make the decisions and drive the research are the people that are not connected to the land, their own land and the other people's land that they make the decisions on, which I feel leads to them not fully understanding the impact that they're actually making um, and how detrimental it is to the groups. So what can we do to build a relationship with the land or our own land so that we don't take from others? Yeah, nice, nice question. V Victoria, what would you say? Yeah, your observation is exactly correct. I'm <laughs> glad that's how you're experiencing the festival. I would say that within our group, there are some, some real barriers around local government that are very difficult to, to overcome. As much as we can evidence these uh, impacts through stories, we can bring them to an international platform um, we can bring us all together, we can share with you guys. There's still a lot of barriers um, to implementation, as Daniel has talked about, at a local policy level. What I would say we can do is hear those stories, tell them again, tell them to others, share. Basically, I think that would be my answer. Yes, Daniel, it, it can be hard to convince governments to do what you think they should do, can't it? Sure. Uh, it, it will be always good when you are doing any research with the community to have what you call free prior informed consent. You consent with the community, get the leadership, let them take up the role of doing um, the research themselves. Let them also understand the outcome, what comes after the research. Because one of the huge challenges we have had is after the research, we don't know where the papers are kept, whether they are in some library somewhere. Um, or in, in, in a journal somewhere, the community need, but if it is done by the community, you can easily walk and say, Daniel, where is the research? What came out of the research? And I'll be able to tell you this is what we came up with. So, so, and, but now when we have it, it is easy for us to take it to the government, the local government, and say, after doing research, we did one about health and education. And when we, we realized some people were given um, laptops or to buy the... Then the teacher locked the laptops and say, the children will destroy. And yet they were given to be used. But you lock them in a, in a store and say, oh, this, don't touch because it will be spoiled. And they, when the government comes, they will check. And, they, and then what was the purpose of the laptops? Yeah, very tricky. Well, thank you very much, Daniel Kobe from the Ogyek People's Development Programme, Victoria Pratt from Land Body Ecologies as well. Now, listening to people's stories feels as though it is a, a key part of the work that you've been doing. And that is something we are going to talk about much more in the second part of the evidence and about how that can or can't change policy as well. We are breaking for the BBC News now, but I'll be back soon with more from Elaine Flores and also the former Prime Minister of Australia, Julia Gillard, and environmental activist, Latanya Belai Jamdam, who will be telling us about the experiences of the Dayak community in Indonesia. And we'll be asking whether stories need to be taken more seriously as a form of evidence when it comes to policies around the health of the people and the planet. I'm Claudia Hammond. Do join me again in a moment for the second part of the evidence from the BBC.
Hello, I'm Claudia Hammond and welcome back to Welcome Collection in London where I'm with a live audience and we're exploring the concept of solastalgia, the homesickness and existential distress you can feel when your home surroundings are wrecked by environmental change. Now next, I thought we'd talk about how solastalgia can be measured and what kind of evidence do we need to illustrate it in order to bring about change and to attempt to rectify the links between humans and their ecosystems. Epidemiologist Elaine Flores from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine is still with us. And we're also joined by Julia Gillard, who is, of course, the former Prime Minister of Australia and is now chair of the Wellcome Trust. And Leitania Belai Jandam, who is an environmental activist descending from the Dayak tribe in Borneo, Indonesia, who is known as Belai. Thank you all for joining us today. And now, Julia, we heard earlier how the term solastalgia was actually coined in Australia by the philosopher Glenn Albrecht who was capturing the experiences of persistent drought and the impact of coal mining on people in, in New South Wales. I was wondering, during your tenure as Prime Minister, how much did the ecological pain or distress caused by environmental change ever come up? I mean, would the emotional impact of losing your land or, or needing to move be considered in comparison with, say, the economic impact on people? It, di it did come up, and I would say it came up in a variety of ways. I mean, firstly, uh, while I was Prime Minister, uh, there were a number of extreme weather events. And, of course, we know that extreme weather events are going to become more frequent as a result of climate change. And when I'm talking about extreme, I really am talking about extreme. We had a flooding event where the amount of land underwater was uh, equal to the size of France and Germany combined. And we had a cyclone that hit and then dumped water and then, of course, made the flooding worse. Uh, and so in those sorts of circumstances, you do end up uh, responding to the natural disaster and the sense of immediate distress but for many people, there's also the lingering sense that even if they can recover from this natural disaster, that the way in which the world is changing means that there are going to be ever more hurdles, ever more barriers, more pressure, and their way of life is not going to be as they've known it in the past. That was added to by the fact that Australia had been through some extreme droughts and uh, land that had been traditionally used for farming, it was becoming increasingly obvious that it was going to be unviable over time. So in many ways, uh, communities from all parts of the nation, I mean, we're a very big country, very uh, diverse in terms of landscapes, weather and the sorts of pressures that are on people. So it did come up and it was something that was the subject of community discussion and policy discussion. And so would the emotional impact be taken into account as well as the economic impact? Obviously, if people are flooded, there's a huge economic impact as well. Oh, yes, absolutely. And we have had uh, a lot of practice, unfortunately, but a lot of practice at responding to extreme weather events and now mental health supports are run out alongside and with the same degree of focus and urgency that food supplies and clean water and all of those um, absolute emergency responses are run out. But what the evidence tells us is in the immediate aftermath of an extreme weather event, 
everybody is affected. Everybody has some form of mental distress, understandably, and often these events occasion loss of life, so there is direct grieving for those who have been lost. But in the immediate aftermath, there is also a lot of common purpose and solidarity. There's a lot of attention on the event. The TV cameras are there, the radio journalists are there, and so people have that adrenaline and sense of being cared for where you see the deepest uh, psychological responses is actually a number of years afterwards and it's an impact on a smaller group because for many people they have recovered from the extreme event and their life has gone back to something that looks like normal but for a section of people their life does not return to anything that looks like normal and so two years later, five years later can actually be a worse time for them than the day after or the week after or the month after. And I guess by then people aren't listening to their stories so much either in the same way. And Bella, you're a member of the Dayak tribe in Indonesia. Can you tell me a bit more about your tribe? And I know you don't live a traditional lifestyle, but what would a traditional lifestyle be like now? Yeah, thank you, Claudia. Um, So yes, I'm a part of the Dayak tribe. We are the indigenous group from Borneo Island, Indonesia, and we are known globally as forest guardians, leaders of forest stewardship because of our role and our connection with the land and inherently parts of our culture and tradition is oriented towards protecting the forest and equally protecting our culture, our identity and ourselves as a result. And my parents, both of them were actually from Borneo. They were from different tribes, but they moved to Java Island, which is where I was born and raised. But my mother had a particularly strong connection with the Dayak values and traditions. And so that was something that she's always wanted to pass down to me. So growing up, she taught me that the two most important things that I have to take care throughout my life is nature and culture. And the unique thing with the Dayak tribe, and I'm sure we find in many different indigenous communities, is that those two things are just intertwined. You cannot protect the forest without protecting the culture, and vice versa. When you're protecting the culture, ultimately it is to do with protecting the environment that is supporting your lives. Um, One of the communities that I work with, they're called the Dayak Iban of Sungai Utik, or you can call them the Sungai Utik people. They live in the Kapuas Hulu region in West Borneo, and they have a phrase that is like an ethos, a philosophy of life that they've passed down from generation to generation. And it goes, the forest is our father, the land is our mother, and the water is our blood. It tells you just how powerful their relationship and connection is to the land and how their everyday lifestyle and traditions, living in the longhouse, living communally, the shared common interest is how can we protect the forest around us, something that is supporting our lives, our health, our spirituality, and something that is connecting us as communities. And again, like many other indigenous communities globally, they have lost some of their forest and their homes. Um, What has happened to them and, and, and why? I think a lot of the common challenges that you find with indigenous peoples are land rights and the issues of like what Daniel was sharing, how sometimes government would give concession to bigger corporates and companies like palm oil companies, for example, and give them the right to encroach land. And so that was something that some of the communities that I was working with faced as well. The Sungaite community, the leader is called Apai Jangut. And there was one time that he told me, a man, like a land agent, somebody we would call a chukong, he came 
to Apai Janggut with a box of money, and he said that I can give you all of this money if you just give me your land. But something that I think was very powerful learning from the Sungaiti community is they have such a strong connection and their culture is just so you know, strongly rooted in the environment that they were able to say no. Because for Apai Janggut, this is also something, a very important lesson that he taught me. He believes that we are poor not when we do not have money, but we are poor when we do not have land. And so that strong culture and connection with the land is something that has been fueling the community's ability to continue protecting despite all of these challenges like land encroachment and corporates coming in wanting to build large plantations. But of course, there are also many other Daya communities who face you know, stronger challenges and many cases are they wouldn't win against the corporation. So land rights is a big issue that we need to address as we continue to protect the rights of indigenous people. And I know that you feel that the health of the land and the health of people are closely related. Can you give an example of, of why there's this close interaction? Yeah, so I think now that we're speaking more in this idea of planetary health, right, um, the connection between human health and environmental health, I think there's at least two sides of it. One side is how environmental health impacts human health. So like what um, you were saying, Yelena, about things like extreme weather events or droughts or unstable weather patterns, they could affect our food security, they could affect our source of water, and these have direct impacts on our health. But the other side of planetary health that I think is interesting to learn about is how does human health affect environmental health. And this is a case that I learned when I was working with an organization called Health in Harmony and their sister organization, Alam Sehat Lestari, who partners with rainforest communities in Brazil, Madagascar, and Borneo. So I came to their project site in Borneo, and they told me the story of a man who had to cut down 60 trees in order to pay for his wife's cesarean section. Now that's something that you don't really think about. But then it makes sense once you listen to the story because he was at a position where he had to choose between the health of his wife and his um, child or the health of the forest. And if I were in that position, I think I would have made the same decision. And so how can we explore this connection between human health or human ill health and the way that that impacts the direct environment surrounding us? Thank you. Yes. So Elaine, do you think that human health and the environment are much more closely related than we may realize, and in both directions, in a sense. Absolutely. We have a strong evidence on that. We have indicators that show how, in detriment of the environment and the biodiversity and environmental laws, our own health indicators have increased. And I don't want to go into much doom and gloom after hearing my fellow panelists, but it's true that we are closely interconnected. However, we fail to see those connections on the day-to-day life with the amount of consumption that we do and, of course, what bigger corporations are actively doing in detrimental of humanity's health and planetary health as well. And Julia, um, Health in Harmony that Bell I mentioned uses a technique called radical listening where communities are asked what they would need to have in order to, say, stop logging or, or not log. How useful do you think people's personal experiences can be in informing policies about health? Oh, hugely important. And I think if we're looking at through the, the lens of a policymaker, of course you need all of the 
facts and figures style evidence and you would uh, potentially be led into some very bad uh, decision making if you didn't have access to that. Uh, but facts and figures need to be understood in their um, human context and that's where I think the voices of community uh, really need to be heard and that's true as we're talking today about our shared environmental future but it's true really across all areas of policy making. Um, you know, across my political career, I've uh, held portfolios or shadow portfolios in uh, health and education and employment and workplace relations and social inclusion, immigration, the list goes on. Uh, and, you know, I can think of uh, every time uh, that we were contemplating a policy that you learned something that you didn't know because you were in dialogue with a community and your immediate preconceptions might prove right or they might not prove right when you're in that dialogue. So I think... Because well, you might hear one particular story. Can you think of a story you heard that made a difference? Oh, um, well, one uh, very uh, important story when I was uh, Shadow Minister for Health, uh, to give an example... Uh, we have a, a system in Australia where uh, vaccines, obviously they're tested for their scientific efficacy and safety, all of that is done. Uh, and then they are also tested for their cost effectiveness and all that is done uh, by independent experts who then provide advice to government. And those experts had advised a particular uh, vaccine, the pneumococcal vaccine, to be available to all young children. Uh, so I understood all of those facts and figures, uh, but I met with uh, a family, a young a family with a young child, Isabella Bella, uh, who had had uh, pneumococcal and had only uh, just survived. Uh, and uh, you know, through telling that story to me, and then uh, us helping tell that story to the community. Uh, and the Australian community then putting pressure on the then government uh, to fund this vaccine as the experts had said that it should have been funded. Uh, it was funded, and it was funded very quickly. My recollection is within a week uh, of Bella's story firing community imaginations that the government did what it ought to have done at the start, which was funded the recommended vaccine. So, yes, storytelling, um, individual experiences, uh, married with the, the other sources of uh, evidence and data can make a huge change to public policy. So it's both. It's 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 not either or. It's not storytelling or data. It's it's both of them together. No, I, in a way. I genuinely think an and should be in that sentence. I think if we have this big word evidence and then look at what categories of evidence are available to us, um, the human experience. Uh, the telling of human stories is one category of evidence. It's not the only category. There are other categories of evidence generated by uh, policy analysts, by scientists, and the list goes on. And I think we have to recognise, too, that um, you know, part of the complexity of democracies, uh, and I, I well and truly understand that uh, being uh, a former politician, I do have to run the flag up for the political class, and that's not <laughs> always uh, not always the uh, easiest gig to have in the room. Um, but you know, the complexities of democracies are that um, stories don't all go one way. Um, I mean, to use an example that you used, that Victoria used, um, the New South Wales uh, coal towns, 
if we could magic our way uh, into one of those uh, coal towns right now through a, you know, beam me up Scotty Star Trek style manoeuvre uh, and you just walk through the community and talk to people, uh, you would have people express the view that's been expressed in this room today and you would have people who would say coal's been the making of this town, it's the source of our prosperity, our opportunity, uh, it's given us uh, social connection, uh, the trade union is, uh, you know, been a historic back bone of our community and how we live our lives um, and if the coal mine closed that would give us a sense of dislocation um, and you know sitting in this country of all countries for those of us who are old enough to remember the Thatcher years which mightn't be everybody in the room uh, the rapid closure of coal mines did cause huge community dislocations so that's not me putting a case for coal I don't want you to interpret it like that because that's not what I'm trying to do but it is me putting a case for complexity um, and so you know you don't go out as a politician and meet communities and community members uh, of all different uh, diversity of views and hear just one story. Belli, why do you feel it's so important for the Dayak people to be listened to? And do you think it, it does make a difference if they do get the opportunity to tell their stories and to explain what their experiences are? Yeah, definitely. Um, if I come back to that story about the Sungaiti community, something that they've been struggling for over 40 years was fighting for their land rights. And I know this is a shared experience among a lot of different indigenous communities, but something that really accelerated that process of them now finally receiving those rights is actually storytelling and campaigning on different levels across different sectors and in a collaboration with a very incredible group of advocates who are helping make the case for indigenous rights, making the case for forest conservation. And I think at the heart of it is storytelling because concepts like solastalgia, for example, or concepts like forest conservation, I think can become even more powerful when you center it around human voices, right? And listening to the people and the stories behind that um, concept. So for the Sungaiti community, 40 years of struggle to get those land rights um, was accelerated by a campaign where we uplifted their story into the international level. So they were the recipient of a, U, uh, a prize called the UN Equator Prize, which then accelerated recognition on the national level. So then the Ministry of Environment and Forestry in Indonesia um, gave them the Kalpataru Prize in recognition of their work as forest guardians, which then... Um, pushed for the local level advocacy, which Victoria says is really where a lot of the problems come in. And so uh, we could make the case for giving land rights to the Sungaitic indigenous community because now every level of you know policymakers and advocates understand that there is an importance um, in protecting the rights of these communities. And a lot of that is, like you mentioned, rooted in storytelling. So there is definitely an importance of centering that around human voices and experiences. And Elaine, what about when it comes to measuring solastalgia? Can, can we measure it? There have been some attempts. However, this is a relatively new concept. So trying to get reliable data and being able to, to use it across different areas requires a lot of work, you know, and also that needs to be adapted to a context. And 
Of course, we have interviews, data from stories and data from focus groups, qualitative uh, data that we can use to measure all the dimensions that we need to install Stalgia. So again, for you, is it a combination of, of data and stories in terms of the evidence, the qualitative and the quantitative data? I always advocate for mixed methods, yes. So a combination would be uh, the most certain one that will enable us to see the bigger picture, no? Aside from the other data that can come from policy, we can do policy analysis and also gather all the, uh, across the evidence, several studies, um, the consensus. And Bella, do you have optimism for the, for the Dayak people? Are they going to win their fights? Yes, definitely. I think the narrative is starting to get out there more. I mean, just seeing the case study from the Sunaitic people gives me a lot of hope that there are groups out there who are ready to support our advocacy work. There are different governments and authorities out there who want to support the recognition of indigenous rights, the protection of indigenous peoples. Um, so there is a lot of hope. Something that I always say when it comes to activism is also how can we bring joy into the conversation? Because like uh, you mentioned earlier, a lot of these um, discourses very doom and gloom, which can get very depressing and tiring um, and just very burdening to us um, at many times. Um, so something that I always say, um, and this is taken from my fellow activist, she's called Michaela Loach. She says, joy doesn't betray activism, it sustains it. And that's something that I carry with me. So not only will it help give us hope and a source of inspiration when we're doing our work, but I think that's a point that can help sustain the work that we do as well. And we will go to questions in a moment, but Elaine, I just wanted to ask you, this, this whole idea of solastalgia is still very new. Is it becoming accepted as a, as a valid concept in health? Uh, very slowly, I would say, across the different groups that I have been talking to and the evidence that we have, we see way more interest and we have more studies, more funding calls and um, different interdisciplinary groups that are exploring Solastalia, which is hopeful. And we want to reach, of course, solutions and we want to reach across um, the public health spectrum and uh, the physical health specialists so that they are also aware of what they can do and also how they can be working closely with mental health professionals and with other community uh, workers and specialists. And we have time for some questions um, from the audience now. So if there's anyone like to... Oh, yes, there's lots of questions. If I can get you to give quite brief answers, that would be great. Let's uh, take one there. Yeah. Um, so I, I was curious about the conversation around measurement, and I think everyone had touched on it a little bit, but in understanding what solastalgia is, I'm also new to that word, and so... It seems like the idea of measurement is counterintuitive to solastalgia. Mm. And, and like Victoria had said earlier, it, it feels almost ridiculous to measure pain, a community's pain or a person's pain in, um, in this way. And so I'm curious to hear who, would, who does it benefit to quote unquote measure and what, what exactly comes from measuring? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question, Elaine, isn't it? Because I suppose we do measure things like loneliness as well, which are also experiences that you could hear stories about. Absolutely. I would say that the main um, objective would be to be civilised. If we want to know, um, for example, I would like to know how many people 
how many people are experiencing solastalgia. I would like to know in which level this is being disruptive to their lives or in which level some people have been able to manage by themselves or how many of them have been able to access uh, support. But we do not know unless we can try and measure it. Julia, do you think it's worth measuring it? Or our store is not enough. I think if we can measure things, it helps tell the story. Um, so if if we just have the word solastalgia, but we're not able to explain to people um, how pervasive it is as a phenomenon, for example, uh, then uh, perhaps you're going to get less attention on it. Uh, but I'm, you know, I'm conscious, uh, and, and I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not the expert. Um, but I'm, I'm conscious we do, as a community, um, try and measure all sorts of things that in many ways are, um, you know, intangible. I mean, we do... Uh, we, you, you mentioned it. We do measure loneliness. Uh, we do uh, population health measures, which are about psychological distress. Um, we, as individuals, uh, get asked... Um, you know, uh, whether it's uh, physical pain or mental distress, if you're seeing a health professional, they will often ask you a question, you know, on a scale of zero to ten, where would you put your pain level? And you always, you know, like you never know what the right answer is and always think you're being too much of a sook if you give a high number and so <laughs> then, then you reduce the number and then you think, oh, no, I should have said more. So, you know, I, I know all of these things are complicated, 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 but... I, I think if we can get some data uh, that can help inform the conversation that's useful, what we can't use it for is to then invalidate people's experiences. Um, so uh, to, to say, OK, well, you know, it's acute here and less acute there, so let's not worry about these people, let's only worry about those people, that kind of... Um, you know, use of the information would be a truly pernicious outcome. So we'd have to really do everything we could to make sure we didn't end up there. Well, thank you very much to everybody for their questions. And thank you very much to our panel, Julia Gillard, Natalia Belli-Jandam and Elaine Flores. Now, this show is made in collaboration with Welcome Collection. And we're here today at the Land Body Ecologist Festival. And thank you to the production team, Helena Selby and Liz Tui, and our studio engineers today, Duncan Hannant and Emma Hart. Um, thank you to all of you in the audience for coming. I'm Claudia Hammond, and I will be back on the BBC World Service on Wednesday with more on global health in Health Check. Bye for now. Match of the Day Africa Top 10 is the new podcast celebrating the best of African football. It must be the best ever got. Whoa! Incredible. Each week, Yaya Toure, Efren Okoku and me, Gabriel Zakwani, try to decide who should be crowned number one in our best of African football list. This way it gets interesting. What a player, what a player. I think we know who number one is. There'll be some familiar faces. I play with both of them, both are special. And some tricky decisions. Guys, stop being emotional. <laughs> We're talking about being realistic. I won't argue anymore. <laughs> and we might even make it onto a list or two ourselves. I just needed one list. You've been in many lists already. <laughs> we don't need even this list again. That's Match of the Day Africa Top 10 from the BBC World Service. Woo, that's the one. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts.